may be seated. And if you would begin opening your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We've been going through the book of Galatians. And the Galatians is Paul's defense of the great doctrine of justification by faith. Just to let you know where we are in the flow of the book in terms of Paul's uh, development, uh, thought process here in the book of Galatians. He gives a strong warning in chapter 1 not to believe another gospel. Uh, in verses 1 through 10. And then he begins in verse 11 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2. He defends the doctrine of justification by faith by appealing to his personal calling and to his personal experience. He gives us his testimony. He talks about his two trips to Jerusalem. He talks about uh, his uh, encounter with the Apostle Peter in Antioch and how he rebuked him and rebuked the Judaizers who by their actions were denying the doctrine of justification by faith. And as we come to chapter 3, instead of appealing to personal experience, he's now going to make his arguments theologically. And so you'll hear him as we read the passage uh, begin to talk instead of more personally about himself, uh, more theologically. And he speaks rather uh, boldly, some would even say brashly, to the Galatians as we come to chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with flesh or with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Let's pray. Our Father and our God. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and also, as Paul has mentioned, we pray that you would give us your Spirit to teach us in order that every one of us would understand this grand, this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith in which we take our stand. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Reformation, which began in the early 1500s, uh, began when Martin Luther rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith. 
And this doctrine of justification by faith essentially is that Jesus Christ gives us His righteousness. On the cross He died, He paid for our sins, He gives us His righteousness. All we can do to be accepted by God, all we can do to be saved by God is trust in Jesus Christ. And so it is by faith in Jesus that God accounts us as righteous. Not because of anything we do, not because of anything we could do, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross by dying for our sins and rising from the dead. And so, Martin Luther rediscovered this as he was reading the Scriptures. And he changed world history But in the process, he made several enemies. Um, One of his enemies was named Duke George of Saxony. Duke George was a German noble who opposed Luther's efforts uh, to reform the church. Uh, Duke George of Saxony wanted to keep Germany under, under the banner of Catholicism. And so one of Duke George's complaints about Luther was this doctrine of justification. He said that the doctrine of justification was a uh, the doctrine of justification by faith was a great doctrine to die by, but a lousy one to live with. I think Paul and Luther would have agreed with Duke George of Saxony on the first part of his statement. Justification by faith indeed is a great doctrine to die by. Because the doctrine of justification by faith says that sinners are completely forgiven by God. The doctrine of justification by faith says that sinners are declared righteous in God's sight. The doctrine of justification by faith says that sinners are assured of everlasting life with the Father in heaven. The phrase that I want to draw your attention to this morning in these three statements is this word sinners. I think we often overlook that. We think about ourselves as being forgiven. We think of ourselves as being declared righteous by God. We think of ourselves as having eternal life um, with God in heaven. But it's often, or it's very easy to overlook this word sinners and to really understand what it means. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul said, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And he continues, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This passage does not say that Jesus died for good people. This passage does not say that Jesus died for religious people. This passage does not say that Jesus died for sincere people. 
This passage does not say that Jesus died for upstanding or for moral people. This passage does not say that Jesus died for honorable people or honest people or ethical people or principled people or decent people. The passage that I just read from Romans chapter 5 says Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for sinners. Let me illustrate this by referring to a passage that I would venture to say all of us in this room know from the youngest to the oldest. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I want to look at this word world here in this passage. For God so loved the world. What does this word world mean? A.W. Pink says that this word this word world means the world of the elect many of us uh, um, uh, came to the reformed faith by reading A.W. Pink's book The Sovereignty of God and it's in this book that he makes this argument and I disagree with A.W. Pink I love A.W. Pink I own nearly all his books have read most of his books and um, love him dearly. But when he says that the word world means the world of the elect, it almost seems like he's afraid of letting the word world um, mean what the Bible would say that it means. Um, So, what does this word world mean if it doesn't mean the world of the elect? Well, many people, most people I would venture to say, uh, believe that it means the world population. For God so loved everybody in the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so they look at this word world and they define it quantitatively. Um, God's love is measured by the number of people in the world. We almost have 7 billion people in the world. That is a great deal. That, That shows God's love is immense. You multiply His love by 7 billion. For God so loved 7 billion people that He gave His only begotten Son. I have a couple of problems with this. First of all, 7 billion is an immense number, but it's still limited. God's love is not limited. We cannot quantify God's love by a limited number of people, however big that number is. The second problem I have with this is we need to let the Bible define our definitions. Uh, The word world um, in the book of John and also in his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, is often used ethically instead of quantitatively, it's used qualitatively. It's used ethically. So, for instance, we find Jesus in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
or more to the point, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Let me ask this uh, by way of preface. Are you to love your, your neighbors? Of course. Are you to love your enemies? Matthew chapter 5. Absolutely. So, listen to this. John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. So if we're talking about the world in terms of the number of people in the world, he's saying, don't love them. But if you're talking ethically, then it makes perfect sense. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world... And he defines it ethically. The cravings of sinful mind, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And so what John is doing is he's using the word world as a synonym for all that is evil. And what he is saying is that God and the world are polar opposites. He's saying that God and the world are precise contradictions. God is love. The world is all that is bad. The cravings of sinful mind, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. And so, going back to John 3.16, I don't believe John is talking quantitatively about the 7 billion people that are living in the world Rather, and so I don't think he's saying, so God loved individuals that he gave his only son. Rather, I think he's saying here, God so loved them who hated him that he gave his only begotten son. It fits very nicely with the Romans uh, 5 passage that we read earlier. In fact, we could substitute the words in here. For God so loved the word that we read in Romans 5, for God so loved the ungodly that he gave his only begotten Son. Or for God so, God so loved sinners that he gave his only begotten Son. Now we can compare God's love and see how immense it is. God's love is so great, so perfect, so infinite that He loves them who hate Him. God so loved His enemies. God so loved the ungodly. God so loved those who did not love Him that He gave His only begotten Son. That's love. And so listen to the good news in light of this explanation. The good news that I referred to earlier when I said that justification was a great doctrine to die by. Sinners, the ungodly, those who don't love God. Through justification by faith are are completely forgiven. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you are completely forgiven. Let this soak into your soul. No sin, no matter how recent, no matter how heinous, no sin stands in your account 
all of your sins have been cast away from God as far as the east is from the west. It has been paid for. It has been completely and forever removed from you. And it's not just a morally neutral person. It's not a person who's made a few mistakes. The ungodly, sinners, are declared, are are completely forgiven. Sinners are declared righteous. If you are in Jesus Christ, God the Father sitting on His his bench as the the uh, judge of the universe has brought his gavel down and he has declared you just in his sight he has declared you righteous he has declared you not guilty and no amount of sin can change that declaration or overturn his verdict If you are in Jesus Christ, He has declared you righteous. And sinners are assured of everlasting life with God in heaven. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life with Him right now. Your eternal life has already started. Charles Spurgeon said that he was so certain of his eternal life in Christ because not because of what he had done as a preacher but because of what Jesus had done on the cross in dying for his sins and rising uh, for his, from the dead for his justification he said he was so certain of his eternal life that he would gladly swing out over the pit of hell on a spider's web and laugh at Satan in his face that's how certain he was of the life that he had in Jesus Christ. His security was not in himself, but in Jesus. Of course the spider web's going to break, but Jesus is going to uphold him. Christian, when you close your eyes in death, you will open them immediately in God's presence. Death for you has become a friend that ushers you immediately into God's presence. Duke George of Saxony was right. Justification by faith is a great doctrine to die by. But he was absolutely wrong when he said it was a lousy doctrine to live with. And inexplicably, I think in our own lives... We live as if we agree with Duke George. We easily forget about the justifying work of Christ for our daily lives. And I think that's the reason why in in Galatians uh, 3.1 he asks, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He doesn't understand it. Why after beginning with justification by faith would you look anywhere else for your standing with God? Oh foolish Galatians. He's saying, who has bewitched you? How many of us is this true of? We get out of bed in the morning and we start our lives without remembering that God loves us and has justified us in Christ. Uh, We head off to work not reminding ourselves of the promises of God 
that we remind ourselves of all the unfinished tasks, all the relationship strains that await us at work, all the things that we didn't do as well as we felt like we should have, and we just go into work just weighed down rather than having the freedom of stopping Remembering God's promises. Remembering that He loves us. Rather, we forget about it. We forget about His power that is available to us. Prayer becomes unnecessary. His Word becomes irrelevant. Does this describe your morning routine? Rush out the door with the load of guilt and uh, the burden of what awaits rather than pausing And uh, remembering God, remembering Jesus, remembering His love, remember His power that's available to us by His Spirit. And off we go. Let me ask you this. Are you chargeable with being called a foolish Brandonian or a foolish Westminsterian? But that's what Paul's saying. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Here's the good news. Even if this is true of you, even if you roll out of bed and you're halfway through the day or even later and you haven't really thought of Christ, haven't really thought of God, haven't, and you've just kind of forgotten about the, 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 the doctrine of justification by faith, that Jesus loves you, He died for you, and you don't really remember it until some hardship comes up in your life where you're, you're pinned in. Even if this is true of you and you're in Christ, God will not take back His salvation. He will not regret His election of you. You know, I, I struggled with that when I was... Sometimes I still do. God, why would you have saved me when you knew what I would turn out to be? Or even, why would you call me into the ministry, God? And, uh, and I find myself asking those questions. But God will not regret His election of you. He will not stop loving you. If you are in Christ, He loves you. And that statement is ever-present in your life today, tomorrow, for eternity. Regardless of the mistakes, regardless of the sins. Paul's statement here, which some of the commentators have said was was brash on Paul's part, I think it's just filled with, with jealous love for the Galatians. Paul's consternation over our forgetfulness about the justifying work of Christ for our daily lives uh, just it, it gripped him and, and, it, and it reflects God's emotion as well. Um, it, it shows us how jealous God is for us to remember the finished work of Christ uh, in our lives. And his emotion continues. Uh, It's it's funny to me as I looked at this passage this week. In verse 2 he says, Let me ask you only this. The word he uses in the Greek is the word uh, monon, for only, for one. So let me ask you this one question, he's saying. 
That's what I, all I'm concerned about. I'm going to ask you this one question. But in his emotion, one question, if you look at the passage, turns into five. Let me ask you this one thing, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's his question. But then the questions multiply. Uh, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, the, he, he's emotional about this. He's emotional over the Galatians. You know, it's like when my children, when I get angry at my children sometimes, particularly if they speak back to my wife, you know, just my mind checks out, emotions take over, and I just start naming names till I get to the guilty party, you know. And that's what Paul's doing. He's just checked out. You know, he's he's multiplying his questions. Let me ask you this one thing, and he asks them five. But the pertinent question is his first one: Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? And I think every other question that follows, he's basically asking the same question in different ways. Paul and God know how forgetfulness, how forgetful we are about the justifying work of Christ. how, how, how easy it is for us to forget about the justifying work of Christ for our daily lives. And God knows how harmful the effects are in our life. And I think that is the reason for his, um, for his emotion. And Billy did a good job explaining to the children where I'm going with this. Um, we often forget about our standing in Christ, being justified in Him, and instead we start basing our standing before God by, by the good things that we've done. Richard Loveless uh, says that many Christians uh, rely on their sanctification for their justification. They draw their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their uh, recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Uh, And that's part of a quote that I put on the front of the bulletin this week. There are many harmful effects of forgetting about the work of Christ uh, for our justification. And the first and the overriding, overarching um, dangerous effect is we do reverse our justification with our sanctification. And we take our stand and, and, and take our foundation for whether God loves us or not based on the good things we do or the good intentions or something in us rather than in the finished work of Christ. So for instance, if you have switched your justification, your sanctification for your justification, you may struggle with anxiety because or discouragement, apathy. Because you're asking, have I done enough to make God happy? Or am I sincere enough in my faith? Or why was I so strong in my faith when I was younger, but I seem so apathetic now? 
Have I lost my faith in Christ? Or how could I have done that? How could I have sinned so willfully? Does God still love me? Am I worthy of His love? Or you have sins that you still struggle with. Day after day, you've been struggling with them year after year, decade after decade. And you're wondering, does this mean that God has turned His back on me? Has He given up on me? And so that's some of the anxiety, discouragement, apathy that can grow up because of um, this practice of basing our assurance of salvation on our works. Pride is also another dangerous effect. Because again, if you're looking at what you've done and you've been fairly successful in your walk with Christ, you can say, God, look at all that I've done. God, I know you're going to bless me. You're going to keep me safe. You're going to give me what I want. And what's happened is God's free grace, you've turned into a contractual relationship. Almost like karma. You do good things and you expect good returns. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is God gives us His grace free of charge. Free of our works. And so we turn it into a, to a contractual relationship. Other uh, ways that pride evidences itself is we become highly critical of others. We tear others down to bolster our own security by making sure that our religious performance in our own eyes is as high or higher than everybody else. You know, it, it feels good because I feel like I've done as much as the pastor's done or I've done as much as this pillar of the church or I've done as much as someone else who I, I feel is a Christian. So I've done enough and so I feel pretty good about myself. Another way that this pride evidences itself is in fierce defensiveness. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews to encourage one another daily because the deceitfulness of sin is so powerful. And it's always at work within us. But don't we all know people who will not receive any feedback if it is negative or could be considered critical at all? You just kind of walk around them on eggshells even if they are doing something that's unhealthy. Because you know you're going to get your, your uh, head chewed off. They're defensively critical because of the pride that comes from basing their um, assurance of salvation on their performance. Another um, deadly enemy is jealousy and envy. Boy, I've done so much for God compared to so-and-so. Why isn't God blessing me the same way He's blessing them? Or, I deserve more than what I have because I have been so faithful to God. Why don't I have more money? Why don't I have better health? Why don't I have a better family situation? I have been faithful to God. Another way it evidences itself is sensuality. Because you're thinking, God doesn't really care for me. Because 
You don't feel as secure in Christ. And since he doesn't care for me, uh, really, well, he easily forgets about me. And I'm reasonably sure that he will forget about my indiscretions soon enough. He forgets about me, and so since he forgets about me, um, my his his, his um, memory of the things, my sins, is short as well. Or um, I'm so sinful that there's no hope for me, so I just indulge my desires. Or again, you throw yourself a pity party, and you invite all your comfort sins to join you. Thinking that I'll make you feel, make yourself feel better. But living on the platform of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, claiming a righteousness that is not your own, claiming a righteousness that is perfect, that is Christ rather than yours, as the only acceptance or the only ground of your acceptance with God, can you see how when you take your stand on the righteousness of Christ, that's like a knife in the heart to all these ungodly and unhealthy uh, thoughts that we come up with in our mind. Justification by faith is a great doctrine to live by. Let's say you find yourself ensnared in some of these thought patterns that I've just um, that I've just described. How can you escape? It's very simple. But we always seem to make it harder. You know, when we find ourselves caught in sin or when we find ourselves caught in a in a in an unhealthy thought pattern, we think, well, the best way out is to retrace our steps and And, you know, like we get lost in a forest, well, the best way is to find the way we came in and go backwards. You know, or when we lose something, well, where's the last place you were? And so we try and work our way out backwards, try and reverse course, retrace our steps. It's not that difficult. When you find yourself ensnared in sin, the Bible says simply look to Christ. That's it. Simply look to Christ. He comes immediately to your rescue. I was thinking about this. Wherever you find yourself, whether you find yourself right smack in the middle of sin, or whether you find yourself right on the verge of giving in to temptation, wherever you are, there's always an escape hatch back to God. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10.13 there is no temptation that has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted there's, escape, there's an escape hatch when you are tempted he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it and the, the phrase I see in my mind's eye when I look at this escape hatch has written on it, Christ-focused repentance. I remember one time when I had found myself in a bad spot and I was trying to regain my my zeal for Christ. I was trying to regain my um, assurance of salvation and I looked at my life 
and I was going to retrace and untangle. And it looked like a fishing rod. If you're one of these guys who has a, a bait casting rod and it backlashes, you know, and the string goes everywhere. And I thought, that's my life. How am I going to untangle this? And in my mind's eye, I saw Christ come with a pair of scissors. And he just cut right through the line. And I said, oh, Jesus is enough. He is the only one who can untangle the mess. He comes immediately to the rescue. And my joy and my assurance, my confidence in Christ returned immediately. Because I just remembered He loves me that much in spite of my sin. So how does the justifying work of Christ become a great doctrine to live by? And I'll quickly conclude with this. First of all, don't be afraid of your sinfulness. Don't try to justify yourself. You'll never be able to do it. In fact, you are worse than you could ever possibly imagine. Manny Estrada, when he was here, he used to like, you'd ask him how he was doing better than I deserve. It's a good phrase to live by because you are worse than you could possibly ever imagine. So don't be afraid of your sinfulness. Don't be afraid of God's holiness. You'll never measure up. His righteous standards are infinitely high. You at your best... Your best works, your most well-intentioned works, your most sincere works. The book of Isaiah says you at your best are simply, your good works are simply dirty rags. So don't be afraid of God's holiness. You'll never measure up. Embrace His holiness. Because when you do that, you remember how helpless you are. And just like we were studying in Sunday school with the children. Just like blind Bartimaeus. Unable to do anything for himself. And God, Jesus, came to his aid. Thirdly, take your stand, and this is lastly, take your stand daily on the platform of Christ's righteousness. Wake up in the morning. Remind yourself, I am loved by God. I am accepted by God. I am forgiven by God. If God is for me, who can be against me? Jesus died for me. I can know that God will be good to me, even through the hardships, even through the suffering, even through the ill health. And when you begin to think of God in those terms, it's easy to love Him. And then the response is, God, I love you. Help me to live for you. God, I know that you have started a good work in me and you have promised to carry it to completion, to perfection. God, do it. Finish your work. Bring me to completion. You sent your Spirit to transform me. And that's what Paul says in our text. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, you began by the Spirit. Spirit, His Spirit lives in you. He, He came to live in you to transform you. 
That is his purpose. That is his promise. And so it becomes not God keep me out of hell. God help me to be better so that I won't go to hell. Rather it becomes God I love you. Transform me by your spirit. Transform me. Transform me. Transform me. Because I want to be like my Savior whom I love, who I know loves me. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would help the congregation at Westminster Presbyterian Church to take their stand on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.